0: Bone Knowing, A True Story of Coming to Life in the Face of Impending Loss Chapter 2, Finger Number 5 Summer, 1989, through Spring, 1990 We've been taking things slow and steady. On the weekends Tom doesn't have his girls, we climb at the pinnacles with Ed and Roxanne. At least once a week we meet for lunch. Daily we leave sweet voicemail messages for each other. Though we tried to get physical on a makeshift bed in the back of Tom's truck after our weekend in Yosemite, it didn't quite jibe, and we decided not to push things. I request yet another extended lunch hour and head out to meet Tom for a picnic at Jack's Peak. When I get there, I find him sitting on a bench, looking out over the bay like any other businessman taking a midday break to enjoy nature. The contrast turns me on. He, in his pressed white collared shirt, polka dot bow tie, and shiny black shoes against the Monterey Pines and a soft, clean breeze. I come up behind him and kiss him on the tip of the ear. Well, hello, you, he says with the affection of a long-time lover. Here, come sit. I brought us some roasted eggplant sandwiches, guava juice, and fresh figs from my parents' tree in Hollister. Ever have fresh figs? Nope, I say. Do you eat the skin? Here, I'll show you. He carefully peels back the thin purple velvet, revealing an orb that looks more like a small ball of white yarn than food. Wait. I take the fig into my palm and straddle him. Show me. I feed the fig to him, and he uses his tongue suggestively, cleaning the soft insides out first, and then devouring the remains. Fig juices drip down his chin. I intercept them with kisses. Warmth flutters through me. I'm taken by surprise. Philosophical chemistry is enough. A relief, in fact. Physical chemistry, too? There's got to be a catch. When I return to the photo studio with flushed cheeks, Ed raises a disapproving eyebrow. A seed of doubt is planted. Finally, on the way to the photo shoot, Ed comes out with it. I think you and Tom are a bad idea. When I press him, he says, Well, you're young coming off a rough relationship and he's old, coming off a divorce. Need I say more? And, Big Brother Ed, tell me something I don't already know, I say. Well, actually, I can't. It's not my place. He leaves it there, bound by confidentiality of the men's group they are in together. And so do I, even though I'm sure he's referring to that mysterious Fifth Life event that Tom Dodge talking about on the way up to Yosemite. It only takes remembering the vitality I feel when I'm around Tom to let any past baggage get in the way. Catch or not, I'm riding this one out. After a scorching day of climbing at the pinnacles, Tom and I shower together and devour a homemade vegetarian meal at his place. Richard, his housemaid, is out for the evening, and we pretend the humble abode is ours. Tom stands at the sink, slowly and methodically, washing each dish I bring to him. I go from the table to the compost, into the bathroom, and out to my truck for a day planner, and back to clearing the dishes, all with a toothbrush hanging from my mouth. What? I stop mid-hand off when I notice him watching me. He smiles. Oh, you're just so fun to watch fluttering about here and there, touching down, taking off, so lightly, like a butterfly. And that means what? I muddle around the toothbrush, looking for trouble out of habit. I enjoy watching you do your thing. Simple as that. Sorry I brought your attention to it. The last thing I want to do is change you. Some unplaced hunger inside me is satiated with those words. Oh, I say. He likes me, as is, I think. Immediately I feel bad for wanting to style his hair and push down his knee socks. He wipes the last dish thoroughly and throws the dishcloth over his shoulder butterfly it's perfect he says to himself and joins me on the couch we nestle into the sofa with bare feet in each other's laps the oak-strewn neighborhood filters a cool earthy breeze through the living room window tom strums his guitar and sings a beetle song without reticence black bird fly nodding to the song list he encourages me to choose the next number Most of the music was popular before I was born, or when I was in kindergarten not yet cognizant of the top 40. He pauses. I know, here. How about Bonnie Raitt's Love in the Nick of Time? He offers, recognizing the dilemma. Yeah, I like that one. He sings through a smile at first, but by the time he sings the final lyrics, it looks like he's going to cry. Carefully, he places the guitar against the couch and takes my feet into both of his hands. He has a look of seriousness I haven't yet seen. There's something I've got to be honest with you about before we go too far here, he says. My mind races and makes a beeline to sex. Uh oh, STD. Maybe HIV. It's okay. We can get tested, be vigilant with condoms, and I have cancer. He blurts it out before I can fix any of the possible problems I anticipate. Oh, okay, I respond matter-of-fact. Numb and instant loyalty rises to veil the spurt of acid that has involuntarily contracted my gut in alarm. Tom talks on, but I can't hear the details because I'm trying to hear the gut signal. It's saying, no, no, no. See, I knew there'd be a catch, a bad fucking catch. Bail now, you don't need this. Tom's voice mixes in, early stage, bladder cancer, diagnosed just after Louise and I split in January. I see the optimism in his face and hear my tenacious loyalty argue its point. Do you leave just because he's sick? It's not like he wants to die. People like him survive. My thoughts are affirmed by his words. I'm going to be fine. I'm researching alternative treatments so I can maximize my chances doctor says I could get 20 years, and I'm counting on a full recovery, bladder intact. A flurry of figuring thoughts pull me back inside, indulging themselves behind the even eye contact I offer Tom. They begin puzzling together the nausea of the fifth finger event, Ed's raised eyebrows, and Tom's overconfidence on the climbs. Under all is the chatter of a heart that doesn't care about sense-making. It listens to bone-knowing and the language of synchronicity. And it votes me in. Ah, he's all about living, it says. My shoulders soften in the relief of knowing he will live fully until he dies, no matter when that is. For far too long, I tried to sell Scott on life, while half expecting to find him dead by choice. Tom doesn't need a sales pitch for life. He is the sales pitch. In my heart, the image of our initial handshake in Ed's front yard eases its way to front stage. It makes for a clear knowing and shoots strong roots from heart to bones. The voice of my wisest self comes through. This is your ride and you know it. Get on. It's going to be a fantastic journey. Don't judge it. I'm knocking it back with local chemotherapy. This tube gets inserted up my penis and, he says, just do it, right? I interrupt him with my final consensus. I'm still in. Tom looks surprised. He hops up off the couch, disappears into the bedroom, and returns with a joint to share in celebration of our first major hurdle overcome. The prognosis is good. Few rounds of local chemo and some healthy lifestyle changes, and I'll be good to go. His voice takes on the tone of a suave salesman. I've seen network for telecommunication contacts at restaurants where we meet for dinner. He lights the joint and speaks on the inhale, a trick of a true seasoned pot smoker. I really think alternatives are the way to go. I'm not interested in rearranging body parts with surgery. He squeaks out, holding his breath, and passes me the joint, looking up to see if I'm still with him. He exhales a smooth stream of smoke and resumes in a grounded voice. I'm planning on living, Jen. Mm Mm-hmm. I nod, chest puffed up with smoke. You want to live, that's all I need to know, I think. Exhale. A good high takes hold and we laugh hysterically, poking fun at our new common enemy. It surprises me that cancer's dark threat doesn't hover over me once the pot wears off. Even the next morning when I wake to the waterbed sloshing as Tom gets up to make his signature pancakes, I feel like an eagle soaring so high all the details of the earth become a beautiful collage. I slip into the flannel nightshirt he's left out for me and mosey up behind him in the kitchen. Another beautiful day, I say. He turns into me and kisses my forehead. Indeed, butterfly, let's make the most of it. Our big coming out as a couple is Tom's 44th birthday. One night he was telling me how he had always shared a birthday with his younger sister, Monica, as a child. I convince him to make up for lost time this year with a big bash, partly because I've adopted his attitude of going all out now that he can't take a full lifespan for granted. And partly because birthday celebrations are in my blood. In my family, birthdays serve as excuses to gather the masses. Everyone brings a dish to share, and my mother always makes the cake from scratch. So I carry on the tradition with Tom. Together we plan a potluck beach party and invite old friends from his circles, men from his therapy group, his daughters, and a few people from my circle. I make him a carrot cake with real cream cheese frosting and buy party hats, knowing he'll enjoy both. With so few hours logged in together, it's strange how easily we fall into feeling like we've known each other forever. Stranger, I'm sure, to his daughters. I've been nervous to meet them. It's a big step. If Tom weren't serious about being together, he'd never let me meet them. When they arrive, he jogs over to them and hugs each of them long and tightly. Then he walks over to me, flanked by twin-like beauties. Only one has golden-brown ringlets to her waist, and the other has chestnut brown. Tom introduces us, and the girls are polite, shaking my hand and smiling past the difficulty of assimilating Daddy with another woman, a younger woman. I feel bad. Not for falling in love with their father, but for all they've been through at such tender ages. They hang together throughout the party and gravitate toward family friends who are making similar adjustments. At the very least, it looks like they've teamed up together to weather this change. That night, as we're packing up his truck, Tom marvels at their bravery. Most of the summer passes without further contact with his daughters. Tom takes care to schedule our time around his time with them. It's okay by me. That's exactly the kind of man I'd want fathering my children down the line. The mysterious chemotherapy treatments add a gap in our time together as well. Tom told me the medicine goes in via his penis, and that's enough for me to figure out he's avoiding potential impotence issues. It could be that he's protecting me from the reality of his cancer too. I wouldn't know though, because we don't manage to get very far with this conversation without an enthusiastic subject change. Same thing happens when we talk of meeting his parents. There's always some reason it doesn't quite happen. That is, until today. On the way home from climbing, we had made our usual pass through Hollister, where Tom's parents still live in the house he grew up in. We stopped for a beer at the San Andreas Brewery, and Tom had swigged down the last of his brew and said, How about we make a quick visit to my parents' place? Like this? I asked, showing off the latest scrapes on my forearms and cake dirt under my fingernails. Of course, we did just climb, he said. Yeah, but... I tried another angle. They don't know we're coming, and we all have beer breath. Jan, you've wanted to meet them, right? He asked. Yeah, but what I wanted was confirmation that Tom's not ashamed of our relationship because of my age, that dirt and dried blood is minor compared to my status as the girlfriend. Okay, sure, I said. Well, now we're here. Ed's along for the ride, having a great time as a fly on the wall to the whole shindig. We've parked in front of the house. Simultaneously, his mother opens the screen door as if she's expecting us. Tommy, she says, shading her eyes in the afternoon sun. Mom, hi. We've been over at the Pinnacles climbing. That would stop by for a minute. He sounds casual and just a tad sales pitchy. These are my climbing partners, Jennifer and Ed, he says, turning back to us. Well, that was handy, I think. What happened to the partner, as in girlfriend? She gives Tom a pressing stare as she extends her hand to each of us and says, Mrs. Stella, come on inside. We pass the wall of family photos over the massive heating grate to the living room, where Stella points us to the couch and sits in her matching lazy boy alongside Tom's dad. Well now, who have we got here, his dad says, hitting the remote to mute. Dad, this is Ed, the man responsible for getting me up on the rocks, and this is Jennifer, the woman I'm dating. Now I know Tom means business with us. Stella gives her husband the same hard stare. He's grinning from ear to ear. Well, hello, Jennifer, he says, looking over his glasses. And Ed. Huttanelli, Michael? Stella glares at her husband. Kids, she says, and I think she means me. The tree in the back is full of figs. Why don't you all go pick? Ed and I follow Tom's lead and rise. Stella fumbles for the plate of Hershey minis on the coffee table. Have some candy before you go out. Tom scoops up a couple of Snickers, acting as if he actually eats this stuff. I'm reminded of the instant regressions I have every time I get around family, only it usually takes me two to three days to fall back into old habits michael tom's dad is still looking over his glasses when we all file out to the fig tree tom leads us in the routine pick sit eat candy and then leave with a grocery bag full of stuff from their fridge as we leave he holds my hand within a half hour we've jumped another relationship hurdle the nagging worry that i'm tom's last ride plaything is quelled for now with the meeting of his parents and daughters out of the way, we have renewed our Just Do It motto. Tom is flying high with possibilities, as if he's finally the captain of his own ship. When Ed tells us he's meticulously planned a 700-foot climb up West Crack into Tuolumne Meadows as the next challenge in our rock climbing careers, Tom and I are on board before he finishes the safety angles. Not one ounce of worry is spent pondering whether we are experienced enough for it, Until the day of the climb when the four of us are dispersed among a few pitches 40 to 160 feet off the ground. Roxanne is one pitch up from the ground and one pitch below me, the last of our party to ascend the tricky overhang, and she's dead weight on the rope. I'm anchored into the rock and standing on a pretty generously sized ledge, so holding her in place until she gets her focus back isn't a problem. Until ten minutes pass with no movement. Then, I decide to start hauling her up one squat at a time. I can't do this! The wind has picked up her scream. It's hardly audible. I try yelling up to the next pitch where Tom and Ed are perched waiting and likely wondering what the holdup is. But the wind takes my voice elsewhere. I'm in over my head because Roxanne is in over hers. I don't know how to let her down to the ground with the equipment at hand. My thighs are burning as I cinch a foot or two of rope through the belay ring each time I squat. When she finally clears the edge, she's shaken and wants out of this adventure. It's too late, though. Her panic easily taps into mine about being too far in not to turn back with Tom, and now I'm wide awake to what I'm getting into on the rock and in relationship. Keep your eyes on the rock and trust the rope, I say, sending her on up another pitch with the best advice I know. For both climbing and life. Roxanne places one trembling hand on the rock and then another, then a toe into a crack, a lift up to a wobbly leg, and another hand. There's a fine line between trauma and excitement with this sport, and I'm hoping she crosses over to the ladder before the day is done. What's supposed to be a challenging six-hour climb and walk-off has become an almost impossible 12-hour marathon of wading on scrimpy ledges 40 to 600 feet up, for three other climbing partners to face their demons, and then take on my own. By evening, I'm immune to heights, as I scamper up the final crack, shoving my hands in and pulling out and up, racing against darkness and the cooling temperatures. On the plateau, the stars brighten against the cool navy sky, and it feels like we are more a part of that world than the one far below. And we're looking at exactly that fate if we don't come up with a game plan quickly our choices are to huddle close for the night and risk all of our lives with hypothermia or risk one life by way of a semi-protected down-climb to secure a rope for the other 3 ed is weighted with responsibility trying to plan the safest option tom is soaring from achievement and a little too giddy for the situation at hand ooing and eyeing over the asteroid showers overhead as we stand together shivering and dehydrated we peer into the black abyss below us backlit from the moonrise. Tom offers lightly. I think I'm the best candidate here. I'll go. When he says it, I know exactly what he means because I'm thinking the same thing. Not that I want his life to be at stake, but it already is. It's clear we both understand this. Tom Crab walks with his butt scraping along the granite into the darkness. I watch him disappear over the edge with the rope trailing behind. If he falls, Ed has him on belay, only with no real anchor to the rock. They're both at risk. Ed feeds the rope steadily until there are only a couple yards left. There are a few quick tugs, and then, from the sheltered side of the rock, we hear Tom shout, Off belay! We take our turns down, climbing into the black void. When it's my turn, I'm surprised that I feel absolute peace. The change in temperature as I move into the shadow of the moon The feel of every slight outcropping under my palms, the smell of the cooling rock, even the subtle shades of darkness are vivid and envelop me completely. To die or not to die is no longer the question. There is no question. I move slowly now, giving the piece a chance to absorb. It's a strange phenomena that the closer we get to safety, I have a growing affection for the not to die option. Many pitches later, when we make it to the valley floor and start joking about how well it worked out that Tom has cancer, living returns to rank number one priority. Only now I know that Tom's death, or even my own for that matter, won't kill me. In September, my sister Amy returned home to Maine just hours before the Loma Prieta earthquake hit. I'm not sure if it would have sealed or killed her decision to move out in the spring. It was scary in the moments when nothing was predictable, not even the solid earth I've come to count on when all else is in flux. I'm certain her fear, like mine, would have melted with the way people have come together in this crisis. For 15 seconds of ground-buckling, window-quaking moments, I braced myself in the bedroom doorway. The phone rang just as the movement let up. It was my dad. He was watching the World Series from back east when the TV cameras began shuddering and he picked up the phone to check on me before the lines were overwhelmed. "'Oh, I'm fine,' I told him. "'That was one wild ride, huh?' In the hours since then, Tom has come over, and we've listened to the radio together by candlelight and learned about the highway and bridge collapse up north. People have died in this wild ride, many of them. Somberly, we walk through the pitch-black streets down to the pier— it's the first time I've seen the stars so vividly since that night up on West Crack. The neighborhood is foreign without the humming streetlights and traffic noise. The sea lions sound excessively loud without the chronic noises blocking them. People are out mulling around in the streets fully disguised by darkness. As we come upon them, Tom asks, You okay? Is your home okay? I heard they're going to have a big barbecue down on the pier. Can't be sure how long the par will be out, so they say they've got to move the perishables. gotta come check it out shadowy outlines move in close some of the voices I recognize like the Japanese woman who lives in the apartment building behind me and calls out the window to her daughter each evening I don't recognize and wouldn't ever if it wasn't for Tom and his knack for bringing people together he regularly steps over the line between trauma and excitement we share a glass of red wine by candlelight at a table in the middle of the pier where a few of the restaurants have maneuvered themselves outside with makeshift barbecue pits. One grill is lined with fresh salmon, another with pork. The smoke from both mingles among the low voices of people who have gathered to make the best of a bad situation. A tear, just one, leaks out from the corner of my eye. People died awful deaths this very evening, and I'm so grateful. I don't mean because they died, but because we're alive. And so are all these people around us right now. Tom smiles. I know what you're saying. Isn't it curious how we recognize life best when it's aligned beside death? Yeah, I just wish it didn't require the juxtaposition, I say, raising a glass to Tom. Blessings on those who have passed. May we who live drink kick and lemonade and taste every drop. I'll drink to that, Tom says, squeezing a lemon wedge into his water glass and taking a savored sip. For now, I feel lucky that Tom's cancer has pushed us into knowing something that many couples don't. Time is limited. We all die. It's a bittersweet fact that keeps us tasting the lemonade in this relationship. It's very Tom-like to want to show up on my parents' doorstep as a first meeting. We get discounted tickets just after Christmas and land in Boston where it's below zero and snowbanks are higher than any Tom has ever seen in Tahoe. Tom is elated with the white scenery as we drive up 95, and not the least bit nervous. When we get to Kittery, just a few miles short of York, he just has to stop and have me take a picture of him beneath the Welcome to Maine sign. We have lunch at the quarterdeck and order a Monte Cristo to share and two clam chowders. Now this is chowder, Tom says, snorting up the steam over his bowl. I try and think of other tourist destinations to bring him to because I'm not sure how this whole thing is going to go over, the surprise meeting and all. I've been a challenge to my parents since back at 16 when I begged them to let Scott live with us while he worked things out with his family. So dropping in and expecting to stay at their place with my boyfriend, who's just a few years their junior, isn't out of the realm of possibility. On the phone, they are enthusiastic for my new love though I can hear the underlying concern about his age and health. Tom is chomping at the bit to meet my family, so we go directly there, park at the end of the driveway, and tiptoe up into the garage for the full effect. Dad's truck and a school bus are parked outside, and Mom's mail delivery car is in the garage, with chunks of ice still adhered to the yellow reflectors on top. Here goes. I step in front of Tom and knock. Come on in, I hear Mom call from the kitchen. She opens the door at the same time I do. Jennifer Lynn? What? How? Mum pulls me in and hugs me, and Dad swiftly closes the door to the frigid draft and to Tom. Wait, Dad, I say to his shoulder as he hugs me. There's another knock. Dad looks confused as he opens the door. Tom stands there laughing and thrusts out his hand. Hi, I'm Tom Sanchez. Mum, Dad, this is Tom. I say, taking his bag so he can greet them. Hi, I'm Leo, Dad says, pumping Tom's hand. Sorry, didn't see you there. Dad laughs along with him. So far, so good. Really, how could I expect anything less from my parents? What are you two doing? How did you? Ah, oh, I'm Edith, Mom shakes Tom's hand. We came over 2,000 miles for that moment right there, Tom says. That was great. Tom is even more pleased with the the door-in-the-face part. He's probably constructing a future story as we speak. Come on in. Here, let me get your bags. Dad hauls our luggage out of the way. Can I get either of you a beer? I'll have one, Dad, thanks. I feel like a genuine grown-up whenever he includes me in the liquor call and this is a particularly good time to be perceived as an adult who makes her own decisions. Joyce and Larry come down from their studio apartment over the garage when they hear the commotion. They've met Tom while contemplating a move out west and have fed mum and dad nothing but praise for him ever since. So we aren't starting from scratch. We all sit around the bar in the kitchen for hours while Tom sweeps them up in his charismatic storytelling. Even I'm glued, listening to him retell the Westcrack adventure. Amy comes home and hugs Tom like he's a long-lost relative. Come New Year's Eve, he's an integral part of the family, dealing out cards for the blackjack game with his party hat and white suspenders. When we leave, he makes the rounds with hugs, and my parents seem to understand why I take such wild rides. With the exception of Tom's ex-wife in progress, who is too angry to consider ever meeting Tom's young girlfriend, we've met each other's key players. Tom has salvaged a handful of friends from his own circle after their separation, and has blended seamlessly into my eclectic group of friends from art school who independently moved out west after graduation and reunite for beach parties on a regular basis. It's unbelievable to me that Scott came down for Thanksgiving with a bunch of our common friends last fall. As crazy as it makes him to see me with someone else, he admits Tom's okay. Since then, he gave up his spying trips and started planning a move back east. It's clear, even to him, that Tom and I are committed for the long haul. Our first anniversary is upon us and it seems only natural to make plans for a future together. The problem is, we have an unsaid rule in our relationship of not planning too far ahead, as if neither of us wants to jinx the cancer. But I'm young, with a full life ahead, and I want to know where things are going. I tell him this when I call and make a date to climb the wall down at Lover's Point and talk. Tom pecks me on the cheek when we meet and averts eye contact. Something is up. Scaling the wall, we talk climbing shop all around the topic we came here to discuss. It's the first time I've felt nervous and dread around Tom. I can't tell if it's me waiting for him to drop a bomb, or if it's him feeling pressure to make a plan. Eventually, he says, I'm taking six months to travel to Europe and write. Two things I've always wanted to do. I drop off the rock wall and into the sand feeling his words like a blow to the solar plexus. In his conflict-avoiding ways, this is as close as saying it's over as I imagine he'll get. Oh, our first awkward silence comes to be. He continues to climb, keeping his focus on the next hold. When he comes to the end of the wall, he hops off and walks toward me, digging the chalk out of his nails. I'll go in August when the lease for my room at Richards is up. I've just got to do this, Jen. I nod, mm hmm, and turn away. Now I'm certain I've been just a filler in his crisis. Shit. Jen, listen, he pleads, following behind me as I gather my gear. I've got to go, I squeak out, briskly walking away. I don't get dropped. "'especially by an older, sickly man "'who has already promised to catch my fall. "'Back in the safe haven of my tiny room I rent "'in the house I share with two wild and sweet men, "'I swear bone-knowing is a bunch of crap. "'For days I feel lonely and rejected "'until the cancer implications start to flood in, "'if only to solve my bruised heart. "'I'm off the hook. "'He knows he's not getting through this cancer alive.' I consider the possibility that he's trying to spare us both the loss, and I gather evidence. His promise of surviving swiftly shifting from twenty years to twenty minutes last summer on the west Crack climb. And the way he treated chemo like having a period, coming up with excuses not to see me until his body regained pace with his libido. That way he kept the cancer to a convenient theoretical idea that had us living in the now and not something that had real physical consequences that might scare me away. When I've worried, he has pacified me with his promise. I'll get 20 years butterfly, full to the brim. Instead of realizing there would be an illness dragged out over the horizons of my bright future, I thought, 20 years, hmm. I'll be 44, that's old enough to raise our kids and handle the loss of a spouse. He'll be 65, And that's old enough to die. It was all so far off. But now, lying alone in crisp cotton sheets night after night and reveling in the simplicity of my life, I begin to peel back the blinders to the potential mess I'm getting myself into. Maybe his plans that don't include me are my ticket out. All of my best arguments for bailing fall on deaf bones that know better. It's as simple as this. It's your ride. Get on. Knowledge that comes by way of bones doesn't waste its time trying to convince head thoughts that this is a no-brainer. Nonetheless, reasoning must have its say, and it opts for a desperate elimination of the barrier to our future, the cancer. I resort to the god of my youth with prayers that I've scoffed at from the safety of my latest theories. The universe that had taken his place in my late adolescence, is too big for personal accountability. My pleading needs a force with a bearded face. All right, I get it. I'm supposed to be with him. So I'll respect the cues you shoot through my bones if you do your part and let him be healthy. Let him live. Please? I'll be your best fan. I'll convert, repent, and praise you on street corners, whatever it takes. Negotiations with the Daddy God are ongoing. Meanwhile, I miss Tom. I realize how much enthusiasm for the simplest of life pleasures he ignites in me. A giant spider crawls up the windowsill and I'm not terrified. I want to answer one of his many calls and tell him that he cured me of my phobia by introducing me to his pet tarantula. Instead, I leave a voicemail for him, asking if he wants to try a redo of the scene that we had last week at Lover's Point, keeping any lilt of need out of my voice. He calls back immediately, and I let the machine take it. "'I'll be there,' he says. I'm scaling the wall when he arrives so as to avoid the awkwardness of a hug when we are not us anymore, as I've suspected. He reads me and begins a traverse climb. "'Hey, you!' he says affectionately when I look his way. Hey, (coughs) how are the Europe plans coming? I ask between strenuous moves. Great. Actually, I'm glad you're talking to me again. I've got a bunch of questions about Florence, seeing that you're practically a native there. I laugh and remember how much I like this guy. He covers a litany of subjective questions, engaging my memory and love of the place. "'Florence sounds like an artist's haven. "'Wouldn't it be something to go back there?' he asks. "'Yeah, on both counts. "'Maybe I could overlap with you for the Italy part "'and be your tour guide.' "'Really?' he sounds genuinely enthusiastic. "'God, I'd love to.' "'But I don't want to edge in on your quest,' I say. "'You of all people understand the needs of an artist "'to have creative space.' he says. Of course. Look, if this is something that's important to do alone, I understand. It's just I thought when you first brought it up, you wanted maximum space, as in an end to what we have going here. No, no, Jen. It's more that I don't want to forget my dreams of traveling and writing. It's all too easy when I'm here wrapped up in you. And you've been talking about going to grad school, I don't want you compromising your dreams, either. I'm getting the picture. I wasn't too far off with my first hit. Only this time the bones prevail over pride. Tom, you're the one who's always saying it's possible to have it all. Why can't we fulfill both our dreams together? Good point, he says. I never get sick of hearing this cliché response. OK, let's have it all. But I call first he says, grinning, and then turns his gaze to the lavender and gold sunset. I can lend you a little money if you want to come for the full trip. The house sold, and I'll have my half by then. Nope, I'm good, I say. I've got the money I put aside for school, and I can replenish it later. Waitress jobs and colleges aren't going anywhere. Besides, I know how to do Europe on a shoestring budget, I say, wiping my hands on my shorts. The distance between us closes, and we sit together in the sand, sweaty and spent from our games. It's not that I didn't want you to come in the first place, really, Jen. I just don't know if this whole thing is fair to you, he says, smoothing the sand between us. It's obviously more than a trip to Europe he's referring to. Why don't you let me decide that? I'm not a child. I turn to him and smile. Close, though. He laughs and presses my hand to his mouth, kissing it. You're more of an adult than most people, I know. It's just, this could get sticky. Yeah, I know. I hear myself gloss over the sticky implications. When I said I was in, I meant it. God, you're amazing. He looks to me with wet eyes. I feel amazing, even goddess-like, in that moment. The best part is that he can see it. So you'll have me along? I ask. I'd love nothing more than to take this adventure with you, butterfly. He leans over to hug me, and we end up lying in the sand, making out like teenagers. We are back, and ready to head into unknown territory. (laughs) This has been read to you by the author, Jennifer Allen. Copyright 2009